Welcome to another episode of Woke with Wesley. I'm Wesley, and today I am sitting across from my dearest friend, Nina. Nina, what's up? Hi. Hi. I'm so excited you're here. I was just telling her that before I even started this podcast and it felt like a moment, like just a beast, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. I have to talk to people all the time. I was like, oh, I could just have Nina. <laughs> just have Nina come. I love Nina. And I think you guys will too. I hope. You will. So Nina and I met, I always count it by the years I've been married. So you were one of the, the like our friends when Bronson yeah. and I were dating. Yep. So it's been 12 years. Yep. And I, I feel, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong right now. I feel like I was a touch of a matchmaker between you and your husband. I Not a matchmaker, but a knower. Well, yeah, you were a knower. You were like, you. we definitely both knew you. Yeah. But like, um, I remember I was... <laughs> We were in the Christensen's basement, I think, the day you found out you were pregnant. pregnant, And yes. I was there. Yes. And you were in the room crying. Yes. <laughs> and I was, like, trying to play it off like no one yes. no one knew. And I was like, what's going on? But you knew. You knew something was yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so man. So she's been around for a long time. But I also time. will say this, that um, at your wedding, like, a mutual friend of ours just sent a picture of us at your wedding. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at him like, oh, it's so cute. And then I can realize there's a person in the background with her head cut off. And it's Andy, my <gasps> husband. And I'm like, that's Andy. So he w- he and I were at the wedding together, but we didn't know each other. And he says you remember seeing me and re- and knows what I was wearing at your wedding. He at my wedding? At your wedding. I remember when you and your husband got together, because I knew Andy separately. Yeah. I knew Nina separately. And the minute that they met each other, I was like, oh, you're going to be married. <laughs> like, why hasn't every uh, – we all should have known this. Like, you're the most perfect couple in the world. Oh, mm, yeah. So how long have you guys been married? Uh, this year will be nine years. October will be nine years. That's a long time. Yeah, but we've been together for ten yeah. already. And you have two beautiful boys. Yep. What are the ages? Cohen is four and Ashton is two. And today we are talking, I mean, the kids are important because today we're Mm -hmm. breaching a humongous subject. Yeah. About loss, grief, suffering, pain, and then I don't even know if the word's closure, but just how you live. Yeah. How you move forward from these things. Yeah. And Nina, I mean, she's dealt with a lot. So I was wondering if you feel comfortable sharing what you want of your story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was thinking about this. I'm like, where do I even start? Because <laughs> there's so much. There's but, so much. But I think I'll start like, um, so in like the year 2010, like when Andy and I met, um, kind of started figuring out that I might have something called Crohn's disease. Um, his brother had it and my dad has had a lot of gastrointestinal intestinal things. And so we kind of figured out um, that I should probably get tested. So 2011, I got tested and I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease which is an autoimmune disease. And then um, Andy and I got married that same year. And then we want, you know, want to figure out how we want to have kids. Like, when can this happen? That kind of thing. And I ha- always had this feeling in my head, like, for some reason, pregnancy, getting pregnant is going to be hard or pregnancy is going to be hard. Like, I knew this, like, from, like, junior high. I you knew had so- a knowing. I knew something was going to be weird. Like, I don't know why, but I always knew something was going to be weird. Was and it, it like, was- your biggest fear? No, I would say it was more like a lingering thing. Like, I guess I'll get, you know, I'll take care of this when I get, when it gets there, you know? Mm-hmm. So Crohn's disease, I started seeing this doctor and he was a fantastic doctor. And he told me like, listen, you know, you can't have babies until you're in remission. Like you cannot be pregnant with Crohn's disease just because it's, you become so malnourished and you don't retain any nutrients and you just cannot provide for a baby in the womb when you're so malnourished yourself. So I worked with this doctor for maybe a year or two to get in remission and I got into remission, I think, um, 2013. Yeah. Yeah, 2013. And I like three months later, four months later, I was pregnant. 
And um, he told me, he said, you know, since you are on medications to keep you in remission, you can stay on them while you're pregnant. But since you're on these medications, you do need to see a specialist called a maternal fetal medicine doctor just so they can monitor you on these medications while you're pregnant, make sure everything's going okay. Um, so, you know, you're looking for a doctor, your first time pregnant, you're like, who, what OB should I go for? You know? So I was researching like OBs that have dealt with like high risk pregnancies. And so I found a guy in American Fork, Dr. Ryan Jones, and he said he had dealt with high risk pregnancies. Um, by the way, he delivered Zuri. Oh, he did. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. (laughs) And I will say this about him. If you have no issues or any complications or anything, I think he's a fantastic doctor. But the second something goes wrong, his uh, level of care drops. Anyway, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But um, it's so funny because so many people tell me that. And I'm like, oh, okay. I know, I know, I know. It's crazy. Oh, I'm glad you had a good experience. Anyway, so when I went in, I decided to go to him. I thought, you know, like he's dealt with high-risk uh, pregnancies. He's really close to me. Like, great, you know. So I went to him and I told him, hey, listen, I have Crohn's disease. I... Um, I need to be seen by a maternal fetal medicine doctor. And he said, oh, no, 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 you don't need to see them. They just tend to scare my patients. You'll be fine. I can take care of you. Being a first-time mom, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. Like, I don't want to be a crazy pregnant lady, you know, whatever. Um, So pregnancy was going pretty well. Um, Found out we were having a little girl. We were super soaked, um, scared. Of course, all the emotions and the feelings when you're pregnant, you know, first-time pregnancy. I guess anytime you're pregnant. Um, and I started around, I would say around 33 weeks, I started feeling like extremely itchy, um, like everywhere. And it, but it was mostly like at night. And so I felt like I was losing my mind and people would tell me, oh, you get itchy when you're pregnant because your skin is stretching. It's like not a big deal, but like on your belly, you know, you're itchy and don't itch it. You're going to get, you know, stretch marks, that kind of stuff and just lather up, you know? Um, but it got to this point where I was feeling pretty crazy, like my arms, my legs, my face, everything. Like I just felt like I was so itchy. So at my 35 week appointment, like go in, um, have like just a regular appointment, um, talk to him the very last second, like, hey, I've been itchy. And he goes, well, have you been itchy on your hands and feet? And I was like, well, I mean, like not necessarily like exclusively. I've just been itchy everywhere. And he said, I think you might have something called intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And I was like, what the frick does that mean? He didn't say much more. He's like, I just want to get your blood tested um, and we'll let you know. Um, so... I got my blood tested that day, and it was like a, I think it was a Thursday. So then the office isn't open on Fridays, and then I had all weekend to sit here and look up cholestasis and everything that it might be and what could happen and what the standard care of practice, you know, practice is, um, and like just like what should happen if I do have this, and I started freaking out. My whole family was freaking out. Um, so Monday rolls around, and he told me my, my results would probably be in a Monday, and I'm sitting there going, I don't hear anything, don't hear anything, don't hear anything, so I finally call in, I think, Tuesday morning, and I was just like, hey, like, I'm waiting on these results, like, what's going on, and the nurse was like, let me look, and she goes, oh, yeah, you do have it, and I'm like, okay, well, everything I've researched over the weekend is like, I'm at 37 weeks, it becomes fatal for the baby on average, like, and And I'm, and you're at 35, I'm at 35, and so I was like, hey, like, it becomes you like you absolutely have to induce me at 37 weeks and I should be getting non-stress tests to monitor the baby. And um, she was just like, oh, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. And I was like freaking out, shaking. I was at a friend's house and she was just like, you know, wide eyed listening for anything. And she hangs up and then she calls me back a few minutes later and she goes, oh, he did want me to tell you that you need to monitor your baby's movements like you're supposed to get 10 movements every two hours. If you don't get 10 movements every two hours, then go straight to labor and delivery. Otherwise, we'll just see you at your 37-week checkup. And I was just like, 
freaking out like what yeah. now it's in my hands like yes. I'm supposed to I'm supposed to monitor this baby um so freaking out the next day like that night I was like I don't feel comfortable with this I'm gonna call tomorrow and like demand a non-stress test so um the next morning I called and the nurse was like let me go talk with Dr. Jones and she was just very cavalier and just like nonchalant and I had said like I read on the internet and she goes oh you read on the internet like just totally like mm-hmm. condescending like oh gosh so she comes back. She's like, Dr. Jones says, if you're, he's okay with it, if you're okay with it. I'm like, yeah, I just asked for it. So they brought me in for a non-stress test in, in their office. And um, Andy had to work or something. He couldn't be there. My dad came with me. And I went into the non-stress test, and she kept having dips in her um, heart rate. Like The baby. The baby, sorry, yes. The baby started having lots of dips in her heart rate. And the tech comes in and t- rips off, like, the sheet of paper. And she's like, I'm going to go show this to the doctor. Comes back. And she's like, he actually wants you to go next door to the hospital and get something called a bio- biophysical profile, which is a timed um, ultrasound. It's a 30-minute ultrasound. And um, they measure the baby in four categories. And if the baby checks off in the categories, like, it, it does what, it's, what those categories are, like breathing and movement or, thing, you know, things mm-hmm. like that, the baby gets two points. Um, and if the baby doesn't get any, like, they don't track that at all in the baby, then the baby gets zero points in that category. So um, we're coming up. I go over there. I'm freaking out. Like, holy cow. Like, if this baby fails this, like, test, like, I'm going to have this baby today. I'm going to get induced. Um, my dad was, like, scrambling, trying to research what this was, like, what this means, you know. And um, it was coming up on the 30 minutes, like, time. And if you don't get, like, everything in those 30 minutes, then you're supposed to, like, go to labor and delivery. So, like, light, like right before the end, like, a couple minutes before the end, um, the tech was like, okay, hey, we're getting close to the end here. He's like, oh, did you feel that? And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe. And he's like, okay, I'm going to call it good. And he's like, I'm giving your baby a score of four out of eight. Um, and I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, I can't really tell you anything, but I'll tell you that some doctors will send you straight to labor and delivery with these results, and some will send you home. So I'm going to go call your doctor and tell you tell him the results, and he'll well, let you know what he says. Four out of eight, so – a fa- that's half yeah so she got 50 percent on this test okay um so i'm freaking out while well, the text away you know comes back he goes well he says you're good to go home and i was just like what she got 50 percent, you know like on this test you know and and when he told me some doctors will send you straight to labor and delivery i was like why won't my doctor send me straight to labor and delivery you know but again i was trying so hard not to be crazy pregnant lady and i was just like trying mm-hmm. to trust it and go with it you know i'm like okay and it's condescend they literally call you when you are a first-time mother they call you in front of your face and to their colleagues this is a first-time mom yes they preface everything with yes. first-time mom so anything that comes out of her mouth just take it with a grain yes. of salt you know it's like okay um, I think he probably did that more than m- most doctors would do too. Like mm-hmm. he was very condescending a lot of the time. Many of my appointments as I look back now. Um, so I went home and here I was just flipping out, just so stressed. Like I'm monitoring. I got like an app and I was monitoring her movements like crazy. So stressed, you know. But then so that day she wasn't moving very well and that's why her heart rate was dropping a lot. But then the next day I felt like she was so active. Like all through the morning – this was a Thursday, like, she was just, like, so, it was so back to normal, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe she's fine, you know, maybe we're doing okay, um, but towards the afternoon, she started to slow down a little bit, she was still meeting, like, the 10 movements every two hours, but I just kept thinking, okay, I am not comfortable with this, like, I'm gonna give it one more day, and, like, I'm gonna call him tomorrow, and I'm basically demand, like, this is not okay. You're gonna raise hell. You're planning. Yes, yes, I was. Unfortunately, Um, It came around to like late afternoon and I started noticing a decrease in her movements and um, 
I got a little nervous and I called Andy, you know, and and Andy was just sweet and just trying to be like, okay, well, it seems like everything is okay. Like, you know, you're, you're at this line of like, you're on this like fine line of like, do we panic or do we just make sure we like, you know, better safe than sorry. Or like, are we just like going to try and be mellow or chill? And so he was trying to like follow my, my lead, you know, and just see what I thought. And I'm trying not to panic too, you know? Um, by about six o'clock though, I was like, I'm not really feeling her move. Like this is something's wrong. So he comes home and he's like, well, let's go get something to eat. Cause that gets the baby moving, you know? So we went to five guys and I remember sitting at that table and I'm drinking a root beer cause I knew that I was getting her moving, you know? And I'm like, okay, come on moving. And then you have these like phantom movements in your head. You're like, I mm-hmm. think that was a movement. And I'm stress- starting to stress a little bit more, but also trying to be like, no, it's fine. It's fine. You know? Um, so I went home to take a hot shower cause she would always just like go crazy in a hot shower. And in the middle of the shower, I was just like, I think we need to go in. Um, so Andy like and instinctually, mm-hmm. you just knew. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling her move like I would, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, so Andy called my parents and called his parents and my parents live locally and his parents are out of state. So my parents were like, okay, we're coming. We're, we'll be right behind you. Um, so we went to the hospital and went straight up to labor and delivery and they put us in, um, a triage room. And I just remember like the nurse come, like my parents showed up like pretty quickly right after us. And then the nurse comes in and she's trying to do like just, um, not like an ultrasound, but just like a fetal heart monitor, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and she's moving it around my belly. And I I noticed her hand started shaking and you could hear a faint heartbeat, Mm -hmm. but her hand was shaking. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'll never forget this moment. And, you know, Andy's looking at the screen. My parents are standing there just like grasping each other. And she's like, I need to go get the doctor. And the doctor came in and he sat down and did the same thing. And he said, I'm getting a faint heartbeat, but I can't tell if it's yours or the baby's. So I want to take you into another room where there's a, a better monitor and an ultrasound. So he wheels us over into another room. And within like 20 seconds of putting the ultrasound on my belly, he was just like, you see this spot on the monitor right here. This is her heart and it's not beating. And, you know, that was just, like, that moment of just, like, your whole world is just crumbling. Um, You can't even, like, I don't even know, like, what was I even thinking? I don't know. But you just, like, everything, like, exploded, like, literally. Um, And just, like, a million thoughts go through your mind. But then at the same time, like, nothing goes through your mind, you know? I couldn't even look at the screen because I didn't want to look at the screen and, like, see that, like, burned in my memory forever. Like, Mm -hmm. like, her heart not beating, you know? So, like, instantly you're just like, well, what am I supposed to do? What do we do now, you know? Like, logistics. Yeah, like, went, what happened? Like, what like, now? I, other than my grandma, grandma who had a stillborn, like, you know, years and years and years ago, I knew no one who had a stillborn. Um, so I was just like, what do you do? I guess I'll have a C-section. I guess they'll just, you know, they'll just take the baby out of me. Are um, you, like, crying? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, my parents are holding on to each other, just sobbing. And Andy's just sobbing. And I'm just sobbing. And it's just horrible. Um, <clears throat> they have put me in a wheelchair. And they say, okay, well, we're going to take you down to a, a labor and delivery room. And we're going to induce you. Right then? Right then. Oh, yeah, my And gosh. I was just like, oh, okay. You know, and you're just kind of in the shock that you're just like, wherever they tell me to go, whatever they tell me to do, I'm just going to do. You know, I don't know. But I just remember so distinctly them, like, wheeling me down um past the nurse's station and there's like a little waiting area and there's families there like waiting for or waiting their turns to go meet a baby or waiting for someone to have a baby and it's just like everyone seems so happy and I just remember thinking like what are they thinking about us like literally all of us just coming out sobbing you know and it's just like it's such this weird parallel of like the most joy someone could ever experience and the most pain someone could Mm -hmm. ever experience like in the same spot you know 
So anyways, they wheeled me down to the other end of the hospital where it's usually pretty vacant um, and I'm not going to be hearing other moms in labor and other babies being born and all this stuff. And it was pretty, it was pretty vacant. It was a really good, a really good, like the way they treated us and took care of us was fantastic. And they put us in a huge room and they also gave us the delivery room next to us so like family members could go and Mm -hmm. be in there if they didn't want to sit in the waiting room. Um, Anyways, yeah, just immediately induced me. Um, I am so shocked. I guess I don't know what would be normal in that situation. Honestly, now that I've been, you know, become part of a support group, it's, it's like kind of different every person. Like I've known several people that they find, they go to the doctor's office, the baby has passed away and they're sent home for like a day or two until they can get them in to induce them. Um, I don't know if it was different for me because I was already in the hospital Mm -hmm. and they were just like sent me straight down to the room, but it was never a question to me. Like, do you want to go home for a while? It was just like take you straight down and they just hooked me up to Pitocin. Like, and then right it wouldn't away. even be, what would be better? Nothing's better. Nothing makes that situation no. better. No, So um, they hooked me up to Pitocin and then gave me an Ambien and they're just like, just sleep, get all the sleep you can. You're not going to have this baby tonight because by then it was about like 9 p.m. Um, so in the middle of the night, they came and broke my water. I don't even remember it. Like I have no memory of it. Um, Andy woke up for it and realized they were doing it and he was like, oh, so yeah, the next morning was all just this like family coming and like being with me and preparing, you know, as I'm in preparing for labor and delivery of this baby. Um, and uh, yeah, she was born that afternoon and I was so afraid to see her. Mm-hmm. In my mind, you know, I've seen pictures of babies that have died or things like that and I just thought it seemed like it was going to be this horrific thing. But um, I'd say leading up to her birth was the most horrific thing. It was so terrifying. The unknown is so terrifying. Um, And, like, just the pain is so intense. I'm sitting here waiting for this baby to come, and I know she's not alive, and I know she's going to come out not breathing. Like, just knowing that is so intense. Um, But when she was born, um, so Dr. Jones actually didn't deliver her. He wasn't on call. It was another doctor from the practice. Dr. Cloward delivered her. Um... It was kind of a little bit traumatic because in the middle of pushing, I, I was like started passing out. I'd been on um, <clears throat> Pitocin in my epidural for too long and it was um, it was fading by the time I was actually oh. delivering. So we pushed the button and I'm like in the middle of pushing, like her head's coming out and I was feeling everything and I didn't oh. want to feel anything. No. So the uh, anesthesiologist came in and put another shot in my back. So I'd push the button, put another shot in my back and I started passing out. And so too uh, much epidural. Yeah. Oh, no. So in the middle of it, uh, they had to come and give me like a shot of adrenaline. And um, I shot up and I don't really remember this. But Andy said I shot up and I was like, let's do this. Like I just was like, let's get it over with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I she came out and um, immediately, though, I almost started passing out again because I started hemorrhaging. Um, the placenta came out in pieces, so the doctor had to go in and scrape out manually with her hand, you know, get out of all the placenta. So it was kind of this traumatic first few moments of, like, just hemorrhaging and bleeding, and here she Seeing is, and how baby. do we react to her, and, like, all this stuff. Anyways, after that was all taken care of, and I was fine, and they brought her to me, it was the most wonderful feeling. Um, she She was perfect, you know? She's beautiful. Thank you. She's like one of the most, I remember being scared to see her too. Mm -hmm. I'm not even the mom, you know, like, but I cannot tell you guys how beautiful this little baby is. Like, she's gorgeous. She was, she was perfect and she was big. Perfect. She was perfect. Like, absolutely perfect. She was big. Um, 
she was six pounds uh 21 inches so she was a skinny little long girl yeah um and that's at 35 um, well five it was weeks? 35 weeks but we ended up deciding to do an ultrasound and we found out she was more like 37 weeks so oh my yeah. gosh yeah with how big she was but i just want to say like it, you can't describe like i think a lot of people think about like holding a dead body mm-hmm. as very like ooh, don't do that very taboo or that seems very gross don't do that Mm-hmm. But as a mother holding your child's body, like nothing can describe that feeling, whether that body is breathing or not. Mm-hmm. It is the best feeling in the world to be with your child. This child that you've been like anticipating and loving for so long and you finally get to see this this child. But in that room for the next like few hours, you know, we had family kind of trickle in or trickle out, you know, and like we never left the room. They just let us stay in this mm-hmm. room. And I remember my dad describing the room because he would kind of you know, be in the room with us, and then there's too many people, he'd go out, and, mm-hmm. you know, and he said, it's a love bubble in here. Mm-hmm. He said it felt like when you would leave, you kind of, like, popped the bubble. Yeah. But when you're in there, it was the best feeling in the world. And it was just, I don't know what else to say. It was an incredible experience. And while we were in the hospital with her, I felt very peaceful, very happy. I mean, I just wanted to cuddle her. I just wanted to kiss her. Um, and our family's got to meet her and hold her, and some close friends got to hold her and meet her. Um, and then... We, we were kind of like torn, what do we do? Do we keep her for a little bit longer or, you know, because she started to deteriorate. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the gist of it, you know. So we we had one night with her and then the next day we spent with family again with her and then um, we decided to cremate her after we did an autopsy and so um, someone came to pick up her body from the crematorium and so there was this point where all of our family had left and it was just me and Andy and her, and it was, the, it, was the, it was the second time we'd been just alone with her, but um, just saying goodbye to her, you know, and just looking her over from head to toe. Um, and then this nurse showed up, and we had to wrap her in a blanket and just say goodbye to her and watch her walk down the hall with her. Oh, it's an awful feeling, but I don't know. It's just like, where do you go from here now? We're like parents, but we're not parents, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just waited for some time to, we just became like glued at the hip and, um, just spent a lot of time together and, uh, yeah, the autopsy came back, um, and it, it was basically told us, you know, I did have cholestasis, but I eventually a little bit later found out I also have something called antiphospholipid syndrome or my blood clots when I'm pregnant. And that's why my, um, placenta was kind of falling apart when it came Mm -hmm. out because it wasn't healthy. It had a lot, a lot of clots and a lot of dead tissue in it. Um, so it was kind of just this perfect storm of cholestasis, antiphospholipid syndrome. It just, um, yeah, her little That's body what attributed yeah. to, to yeah, her. Her death. So, um, you know, since then, like, I feel like I've, I've kind of tried to become like a, I get on a soapbox a lot about talking about death and grief and loss and pain um, and it was just an incredible experience because, like, I feel like people were reaching out to us from all over the world. And Andy said, he's like, this is the most hellish, ex- hellish experience anyone could go through. But this is like it's showing us the beauty of humanity, mm-hmm. like the real beauty of humanity that people from all over the world we don't know are reaching out to us and like trying to share love and support. Yes. Um, and something that I try to talk about a lot, too, is like, you know, it's a very tender situation. Grief and death is a very tender situation. And I feel like as a society as a whole, we really struggle to talk to people about it and be there for people about it. And it's hard because I feel like 
everybody who's going through it is very different and everybody's needs are very different but like I figured out that there were some things that people said and did that were a little harder to take than like than what other people said and this is what I want to know because I think I'm one of those people that I want to smother the people that I know are grieving and grief is weird because I think that we feel at times like we're untouched by it yeah but it's the one thing that without a doubt all of us will feel yes we will all experience deep grief at some point and people even grieve over like the loss of their job yeah but like this type of grief it's inevitable well and that's like one thing that I like told myself I was like you always think like nothing like this would ever happen to you Mm -hmm. like I'll never lose a kid you're healthy you know nothing will ever happen to my spouse whatever but it was something that really like hit me super hard I remember thinking this very specifically in my head no one is exempt from tragedy Mm-hmm. And that's a really shitty thing to have to think about and like can send you down a dark hole. But it also is in a way like it helps you prepare so you're not so like – I mean you can be devastated but so devastated where you can't function for huge periods of time that like if not me, then who? Like yeah. I'm not saying that if she had lived another baby would have died but like it's, it's it can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just a real like awakening of like just – helping me to really evaluate and love what I have and 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 understand that that like everything is so important you know I think that's what people experience Mm -hmm. like life is so much more beautiful now because you realize yeah it's not so perfect all the time and you and you learn to appreciate so um like you were saying you want to know like how like you want to smother people but it's like so hard because some people don't want to be smothered it's either you want to smother them or you don't or you distance yourself it's like I don't want to bug them but I I want to smother them and I don't want to bother them and I'm stuck in this limbo of like this is the other stupid thing people do this is what I do I feel like I want to say even months after it happens because I think that that's when it gets especially hard I think you're spot on there because I distinctly remember like three to four months after we lost her there was like a huge drop a dip. off yeah and I think um people tend to think and I don't think it's by any fault of their own you know it's just kind of like a natural instinct that like oh they're moving on with life like oh, and like I don't want to be the one to bring it up and remind you yes but and I think you're never time. not thinking of it yeah there's exactly. not me talking about the the loss of your daughter you're already feeling it exactly it's, I'm not reminding you of something you forgot about exactly it's in you so, like, I wanted to share a couple of things that I feel like um, are really helpful. Like, I have – frequently I have people reach out to me and say, hey, like, my friend just lost their baby or my friend just lost a spouse. I know it's different than your experience, but, like, grief is pretty similar. There's – you go through pretty similar stages. You may go through it at a different time, but it's pretty similar. And, like, how can I help? What can I do? What can I not do? And when I think about it, it's, like, hard. If I don't know that person very well, I can't say do this for them. But I can say here's some things that I know – after talking to many women who have been through my experience and, and fathers and people like that are is like I know not to do. I can tell you don't do these things. Okay? I want to know. I want to know exactly. <laughs> so I never want to be that asshole. Yeah. And I and I have to remind myself because there was a time when people would say and do things and it made me really angry. And I'm like how the hell could you say that to me? You have no idea what you're saying to me. But then I had this realization and I've come to a place where I feel more peaceful about it and people saying and doing the wrong things. That I was like, if that person was saying and doing the right things for me right now, they would have most likely have to have gone through my experience or something similar. And I would never want anyone to have to go through something like this to know how to treat me. Yes. Or someone else like that. So I try to, I try to do, like, listen to people and do things that, like, 
you know, and listen to them with like a grain of salt and be like, I know they mean well, Mm -hmm. but here are the things I say. Um, Fix it statements. Avoid fix it statements as much as you can. Okay. So there are things like, at least you know your baby was too perfect for this earth. Um, Like you're trying to tell me something to make me fix, to fix it and make me Mm -hmm. feel better. Mm -hmm. And I don't care how perfect my baby is. Can my, can my baby be the worst baby in the world so I can have it, have her back? Like that's how I feel. Or, you know, things like at least this was said to me, at least you didn't have her for a few years and then she died at like four. So you you get to know her and then she, then she dies and then you miss her more. Um, I get, I get that. That's painful. That's terrible. But don't try to minimize my grief and my experience right now. Um, You know, like, God needed her more than you needed her. Trying to fix it and trying to make me feel better. Like, your baby's so special. And I don't want my baby to be special. I just just want your baby. I just want my baby. Like, sorry, God, give me my baby back. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. if that's the logic. Yes. And I think especially in the culture we live here in Utah, um, I think a lot of people try to smooth over grief and pain and things like that. Because it's not pretty. with, With just like, just know she's in a better place and God's with, you know, she's with God or whatever. And I get that. I believe in that. Uh, but it doesn't help in the moment. Like, it doesn't help. Um, also, I can I try and tell people, like, don't do comparisons. Like, um, like say, like, I, you say, you ask me how many kids I have, and I say I have two boys, and I have a little girl, and she was, she was still born six years ago, and um, and I, I kind of want to talk about her. If I'm bringing her up, I kind of want to talk about her. And people would be like, oh, 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 my cousin's, my cousin's daughter lost a baby too. And like, you know, trying to make the comparison. I know they're trying to make a connection, but in that mm-hmm. moment, just listen to that person. Um, and don't, it's kind of sounds bad, but don't try and one up. And I don't think people are intentionally trying to one up, mm-hmm. um, or anything like that, but I, it just, I think people get nervous. They don't want to say, they don't want to do, but it's just like, just listen to the person, you mm-hmm. know? And I also don't want someone to diminish their own experience. Like, I had someone come up to me and say, you know, you had a stillborn daughter. I'm so sorry. I just had a miscarriage. Like, I don't know why I'm so upset about it. And I'm, I don't want you to diminish your experience. What's hard for you is hard for you. And what's hard for me is hard for me. And we cannot quantify or qualify our traumatic experiences, you know. I do think in a way it's good to have retrospect and be, you know, and be able to look and say, man, Look at what they've been through. Maybe it actually has been worse than what you've been through and you can see what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And like, if they can get through that, then for sure I can get through what I'm going through. But I also think it's like each person's experience is their own and you shouldn't be comparing. Um, and I would say don't disappear. Um, I know a lot of times people think I'll, I, they just need their space. And when they're ready for me, they'll let me know. Mm-hmm. Um we don't know what we need in those moments. We like literally don't even know what we need. We're just like literally existing and surviving. So when my friend showed up to my house and cleaned my house and filled my f- my fridge with f- frozen meals from Costco and like fresh things, I didn't even know I needed that or wanted it. But then it was just like, holy crap. Like, yeah, I always have food to turn to because like the thought of making any type of meal is just like you just can't even bear the thought of it. You can't even eat. But then when you are hungry, you're like, oh, there's something there. And they just showed up. They didn't ask. Mm-hmm. Um, people would just drop stuff off on our doorstep, you know, because they're we wanted to talk about her. It was the most expa- amazing experience of our lives, you know, but there got to this point where it was like. It was so emotionally draining sometimes, you know, people just would just drop something off and walk away, you know, and that to us meant so much that they made the effort, you know, they made the effort to drive to our house and just show us that they loved us. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you need to drive to someone's house, but just 
send a card like sending a card is so easy and then you're not making them like unload everything on you and if you're maybe not emotionally available for them at the time to just sit and listen Mm -hmm. but you just know you're sharing to them that you care um I think those were huge things for us is just people would tell us well we were like you kind of disappeared there for a minute you You know yeah it kind of happened and they said well you didn't let us in you know and I'm like it's like not your responsibility I didn't know I was supposed to let you in you know like (laughs) so I we really just found it very I mean it sounds like it it's too much maybe it depends on your relationship with the person really um but people just kind of made their way in and made sure we knew we'd be taken care of in any way shape or form like we had to return something like 30 days were almost up and we Mm -hmm. had no desire to go do it and a friend just came over and got our stuff and returned it for us you know came back over dropped off the change in my husband's hand and left you know like stuff like that it's those tiny things it's those tiny little things yeah and I'm like, like, oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I want to know how you feel, because I've thought about this before. Someone goes through tragedy, they're suffering, they're in grief. And a lot of the times people can just say like, I am so sorry. Yeah. And then I, I feel like it then puts that, the the grieving person in a place to say, it's okay. It's okay. And you don't want to say it's okay. Yeah. But I'd, what do you say? So it's interesting you say that because like, even at this point, it's been six years since Indy died and was born. And I just, someone came up to me at the movie theater the other day and just said, I follow you. Um, Yesterday was the year anniversary of our son's death. And I just looked at her and I was just like, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Like, and so sometimes I think when you know that you're sorry and you say that, it just, it it resonates. It's Mm -hmm. okay. Um, But a lot of times it is hard. It's hard to know what to say. Mm -hmm. And I, so I've kind of like found out, I've walked up to somebody and just be like, I'm so sorry. I love you. This is so unfair and so shitty. And I just want you to know I'm here for you. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to say or do anything. I just want to give you a hug. You know, like. That's like really good advice. Yeah, just You give them the off. You give them the out. Don't even do anything. Don't even respond. I just want you to know how I feel. I just want you to know I love you and I want to give you a hug. Mm -hmm. And most of the time if they feel like they want to say something, they'll say something and they'll share something with you. But if they kind of just say like, thank you, then that's that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about conversation going further. And I think sometimes too, you're like, well, do I continue? Do I kind of try and push a little bit more? But I feel like the person will talk if they want to talk. They'll guide, you would mm-hmm. be the guide. Yeah, exactly. Guide them into the conversation. And if they don't want to talk, be totally cool with it and mm-hmm. just be like, you know, just try and change the subject and be like, so what shows have you been watching or something, you know? And I, I don't want to so – it might be awkward, too, to do that. But just just try and really be present and with them in that moment and, and see where they're at, you know? Like, because sometimes I'm a fairly open book. I talk about stuff all the time, and I will talk about her all the time. But, like, sometimes I'm just, like, a little too drained, and it's just not the situation to go deep into it, you know? Um, but – and, like – so this is another part of my story. Like recently, um, last year, we had another miscarriage. And then um, shortly after that, we got pregnant again and then found out that our baby had severe genetic defects. Um, did some testing and found out that um, she had trisomy 13. So mm-hmm. we found out a little bit later that it was another girl, but she had trisomy 13. Um, and it was probably going to have severe physical internal defects. Um and so here we were, we've already experienced stillbirth, and they were telling us if we went to term with this baby, there's a 50% chance that we'd have another stillborn. And if she was born... Oh, my God, mean. Yeah. If she was born, um, on average, they live 7 to 10 hours, seven to ten days, um, rarely live past a year. And so there was just this, another fire hose of just, like, what the hell is happening to us? Like, how is this happening again, you know? 
But um, eventually we made the decision um, to end the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And like they use the word terminate and it's a terrible word. And like the only other word, you know, like we ended the pregnancy, I had an abortion, you mm-hmm. know, and that is such a taboo and like hor- like horrible topic to people. Especially you know? here. I especially mean, especially everywhere, but like here. Utah. Utah is probably up there with like the southern states mm-hmm. as how horrible you know abortion mm-hmm. is um obviously ours was a termination for medical reasons um there was also a health concern for me as um and then just mental and emotional concern and going through that exact you it wasn't the unknown you knew exactly the type of grief yeah. that would come yeah and you had already dealt with it once I'd already dealt with it once and I can tell you that like we did not take this lightly like Andy and I went through seven days of complete hell trying to figure this out and make this decision and we went from like completely agreeing on what decision to do to being on complete complete opposite ends and then being on a complete like 180 decision on what to do together um that was you know dealing with the with Indy's death was so was the one of the hardest parts of our our lives but I don't think we've said her name to us what the baby's name oh yeah her name is Indira and we call her Indy Mm -hmm. um Indira Usher Earl (laughs) so um yes her beautiful name um, so we went through this hell of like, well, with Indy that happened to us. And with this, this is something we're making a decision to do. So that was very, very heavy. And ultimately, like I said, we decided to end the pregnancy. And, um, during that grief, I felt like we actually grieved harder and more deeply and painfully than we did with Indy because it was so guilt ridden. Really? Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I talk about how I was on it. I love being open and talking about it. And I can talk about it now, but there was a few months there where I didn't want to talk about it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know me. I'm a very talkative, mm-hmm. outspoken person. I didn't want to talk on the on the phone to my brother about it. I didn't want to, when I saw somebody, I didn't want to talk to them about it. And it was, it was harder, like, because this was something we decided to do. Like, when I would see people, like, holy I can see it in their eyes like holy shit what do I say to you you yeah you're grieving the death of another child and you decided to end that life you know mm-hmm. um I mean ultimately did yeah. you feel judged oh yeah oh yeah but I think I did not judge you just so you know thank you I would have done the exact same I don't know I would never think that you would judge me on that but I will tell you this since I have been so outspoken about stuff, um, I decided to post about it on Instagram. And we had some close friends that went through something similar. And they were like, do not do it. This is one of the hardest things you'll ever go through for your life. Like, don't open yourself up to the that hate and that the criticism. criticism. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you, I probably received f- over 500 texts, DMs, comments, uh, you name it. And only one was a criticism. And I was getting messages from from friends and family that I know that are adamantly, you know, against termination and abortion. But you know what they did? They just told me they love me. Mm -hmm. I think that when it is somebody you know, it changes everything. Because when it's a, a statistic on a piece of paper and you have in your mind that it's just... Some an irresponsible, an irresponsible college girl that just wants to party. to to that you kind of can demonize that person Mm -hmm. and then you kind of end up demonizing everyone as a whole i agree and so i think when it became someone that they knew and someone that they know isn't a demon and someone that they know wants this child it um i think it like it opened their hearts a little bit to it 
Um, and I just got like pure love and support. Like it makes me cry thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, and it just made me again feel like like humanity is not lost. You know, like yeah. people are good. Um, and so that's been a whole nother experience of <laughs> what should people say to me? How should and it's talk new. About I mean, this is new. It hasn't even been a year yet. It was July of last year. Yeah, it was actually the day before my year anniversary from my brain surgery <laughs> oh my gosh I forgot about your brain uh, surgery let's all try to forget Nina. about that <laughs> oh my gosh yeah I had Chiari malformation um my uh, wasn't that pregnancy related it triggered after the delivery of my last son it triggered my symptoms but it's something I've had my whole life but a lot of people live with it their whole lives and they never know it usually gets triggered by something like a car wreck where there's some sort of like whiplash or mm-hmm. something anyways so yeah I had decompression decompression surgery july 2018 so and then one year later to the day to the day before i had a a termination yeah so what do you feel how because this is how i see you and tell me if i'm wrong because i don't know i don't know but i see you as you have grieved you have had more loss than anyone i know my age like like deep grief and I see you, I mean, you're a good mom and you're an educated woman and you're always talking about like politics and voting <laughs> and you're like living so, you're living. Yeah, um, I'm passionate. Like, you're about passionate. Things. Yeah. But how do you, the way that you are dealing with your grief, does it even surprise you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, a lot of people tell me all the time like, um, if I were you, I, I I wouldn't be able to deal with this. But I think I think that's kind of offensive. I also yes, I, I will agree. Like I remember when I went because I went back to work shortly after I was working at uh, a boutique, and I just needed to get out of the house. And I remember someone coming to me like, "How are you even here? I would still just be home grieving, and I wouldn't be able to get out of bed." And I was just like, "Are you telling me you think I'm moving too fast, or like you know?" I was kind of like, "Uh huh," you know. Um, but I think you would surprise yourself at how much you can press forward and move forward with your life. Because you don't have a choice. You You don't have a choice. You stop living or you live. And people are like, you're so strong. And I'm like, at the time, I'm like, I'm literally just existing. So if that's being strong, then yeah, okay, cool. But I don't feel strong. Mm -hmm. But I look back now and I'm like, yeah, I mean, that was, I think in the moment you don't feel it, but you look back and you're like, yeah, that was strong. But you're just doing what you need to do to survive. And if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. And you are freaking strong. I've heard this saying, and it's, you know, people say fake it till you make it. Yeah. I like the saying, fake it till you feel it. Yeah. You just live your life until it starts to feel like your life again. Yeah. And I also think um, that was really, that's really important. And I also felt really strongly that um, this was something that I did that I felt like I, uh, my mind and my body and my soul deserved to go through each wave of grief and emotion that came to me. I tried to not push anything out. I tried to give it the space and the respect that it deserved because that what I just went through, what my husband just went through, um, it's it's so important to give your space yourself that space to heal, to just mentally and emotionally go through everything. And some of it is so shitty, and you don't want to deal with it, and you want to get out of that dark hole. But I also think like <laughs> this is how we process things and that's that's that we can't force it any uh, any other way, you know, mm-hmm. like we need to be able to move and work through those things and give that stuff, give that stuff space to, to process. So I think that was really important. Um, I just I don't know. I just felt like it was super, super important to like process everything and to be honest. And, you know, like when people are like, how are you doing? 
And if I wasn't feeling good, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's been really bad for a few days or something, you know, mm-hmm. and just try really hard to be honest with others and with myself. And sometimes you feel like you're dropping a bomb on somebody. But the times that I felt like I was like lying to somebody about how I really felt, I felt terrible. It made yeah. you feel worse yes. about your own situation. Yes. What about your marriage? So like with Indy, like I seriously, we were so bonded through Indy. It was crazy because when I was having a high high and feeling peaceful and feeling mm-hmm. good, Andy was like in, in a low, grieving mm-hmm. really hard. And I was able to be there and comfort him and pick up the slack of whatever needed to be done around the house. And then we'd switch. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like this this flip would switch. The pendulum. You know? Yeah. And it was like then I would be grieving really hard for a week or a few days and then Andy would be you know there to comfort and everything and I just feel like we were just in this pendulum of just like you know continually being there for each other when we needed to be there for each other and it wasn't even it wasn't planned it wasn't spoken of you know anything like that um the termination was really really hard for us because that like I said it was something we decided to do and it was like it's a very like moral and ethical decision um not only are you deciding the ramifications of it to you but like you're deciding the ramifications to your family as social Mm -hmm you know, things like that. Um, so, you know, sometimes we'd be on different, like, levels as to mm-hmm. what to do. And then sometimes we'd meet up in the middle and then we'd switch and be opposite, you know. And so it was a struggle. And I think um, we grieved a little bit darker for that pregnancy than we did with Indy because there was so much good surrounding Indy and so much good feelings and so many good experiences surrounding Indy, whereas with, like, the termination, there was no good. And I feel like people think if you've dealt with a trauma, a tragedy, a death, Something like that, like once in your life, like it's your your bolt of lightning. Yeah. You're struck. Like it's not going to happen again. We got struck by lightning twice. And you just are like, man, like this isn't, it's, it's, it's all unfair, but it feels a little more unfair. Like what? Yeah. When we had the termination, because it was like, I have Crohn's and then I, we lost Indy and then I've had miscarriages in between and then, you know, all these things and I had brain surgery and I just, and then when we had the miscarriage again and then the termination, I started going, okay, what, what? the hell? The is F. going on That's and I F thought word worthy yeah. <laughs> and I started thinking like okay am, do I have more shit going on than other people or does it just seem like I do because I talk about it more and other people keep it behind closed doors I don't know what it is but I'm starting to feel like I'm my I'm fraying at the ends just a little bit here you know like mm-hmm. um but then every single time somehow we get through it like mm-hmm. I don't I can't even tell you people tell me how like how do you get through it I don't even know I don't know sometimes other than like what I've just told you of yeah. just like just giving you the space yourself the space to grieve talking to a therapist we went to a, a grief therapist for the termination and that helped us so much just having someone completely objective objective to the situation talk to us and process through that you know um so it's just i don't know it's just like there's so many things that it's individual to each person but i think there's so many things that we can each do to support each other and to love each other it doesn't matter on our political beliefs it doesn't matter 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 on our uh religious beliefs it doesn't matter any of those things we're all human we're all walking this life together and we're like the whole reason why people started in like little villages or little tribes whatever is because we're supposed to be together we are not meant to walk in this life alone we are supposed to be together to support us. And you mentioned like you don't even want to bring up the name because you feel like you don't want to make them feel sad. But I will tell you what, 
even now someone will randomly text me and say I saw an amethyst which is the birthstone for for Mm -hmm. February and it I thought of you and Indy and they send me a picture of it I break down crying and bawling but I am so happy because they're honoring her they're honoring her and they're remembering her they're not forgetting and I'm sure people don't forget because I talk about it enough on my (laughs) social media I like fire hose it to them you know but like that means so much to me I'm six years out but like I still want people to remember her and know her mm-hmm. and it's like that is so important to somebody just say she's as real as your children your exactly. two beautiful boys you exactly. want her to be honored remembered yeah. you want her name to be said out loud she's a part of you just and I love that name. when people say how many kids do you have yeah you say you you include her yeah I do because she is uh in the times that I haven't included her I felt really bad afterwards and also it kind of depends on who I'm talking to if it's like are you ready to open that door shop, am I ready to open that door and drop this bomb on this person or, but you know, more, no, most of the time I'm just like, yeah, I, I have a little girl and I've actually started including our little girl from the termination, our baby girl. You know, I, I have two little boys, but I was, I've also had two little girls and um, they're, they've passed away, you know, and mm-hmm. if they want to know more, then they ask more. If they don't, they kind of just go wide eyed and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. but I just feel like it's just me if I tell them. I have, I have to be mean. I have it's to tell you. them and I have to respect this, what I've been through. And, and you honor and the, these girls. Your, your daughters. Yeah. I honestly, I am so in awe of you, and I'll cry if I talk about it. I kind of want to, <laughs> but I just, I don't know. I think when you said, "Oh, you're so strong," I see you as strong. Like that is how you show up because you are ferocious in your <laughs> in your grieving. You just do it out in a way you let people in, and I imagine myself. I'm such a isolator I could imagine my ice like me and your situation I would isolate myself yeah. to death yeah. and so I'm like I don't know how I would be I don't know how I would be in that situation yeah. but I think that to grieve out loud the way that you do and you let people in because when you do make a post when you do say something you're making it okay for me to call you yeah. and be like can I share this with you can you yeah. share this with these people because because I feel like you're brave yeah I, I kind of do that as maybe in a selfish way too because whenever I like am able to write stuff out, I feel so much better. And and I need the support of people and I don't know if that sounds conceited or not, but like I will frequently go back to posts mm-hmm. that I've posted about indie or like the termination or something and I will frequently reread every single comment because all of a sudden I'm feeling down, I'm feeling low. Like I just need that boost, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like almost selfishly I post about it because I want people to – tell me they love me and that I'm I'm worth it you know because mm-hmm. sometimes you feel like you're not worth it and like this is all too hard you know mm-hmm. so I feel like it's important for me to share all this and to open up the topic of grief and the conversation about like cholestasis and being an advocate for yourself with your doctor um, and different things like that because I don't want anybody to go through what I've gone through again and it's really important to go through that but it's also really important and helpful for me to be able to process this but that is something I want to say like um, I talk about this a lot because I don't want what happened to me and Indy to happen to anybody else and Andy. Um, and I talk to people all the time about like they'll come to me like I have these symptoms. My doctor's not taking me seriously. And I'm like, go. I know three women that you have saved their baby's lives. Three. Really? They were like, yes. They're <laughs> like, I saw Nina's thing. Her palms itched. And I went mm-hmm. to my doctor. I had, Is it cholestasis? Cholestasis. They have it. Ugh. See, and that's what I like at first, the first person that reached out to me and said, like, because of what you wrote about and I, I realized I had the same thing and I went and pushed it with my doctor, like my baby's here. And you advocate for yourself. I mean, that I is was, what you do now. Yeah, I was so angry the first time someone told me because I was like, why didn't my doctor take me seriously? Like, yeah. why did he make me feel like an idiot? I was so mad. 
But now I look at it like, oh my, I actually keep a list of every single person that reaches out to me and tells me that because I am just, it just makes me, fills my heart with love for Indy. Mm -hmm. Like almost that it was her purpose to die and go through this so that I could tell other people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like to me, it's just like I can see plain as day all the babies she has saved Mm -hmm. and it makes her life and death worth it. I think you're right. So I never knew about it. I never knew about that at all either. And now, I mean, after you're, I I remember this post you said where you were like, you are the mother. Yeah. You know, this baby, when your instincts peak, you, you have a voice. Don't make them let you feel small. Don't make them feel. I remember you used the word uneducated. Yeah. That they like your instincts were your knowing and they, you didn't know the terminology, but you knew. Yeah. And you were kind of silenced. Yes. And it's and you haven't had that experience in the last in your in your sons. No, I you've had you found the best care. I have found I went to an MFM now maternal fetal medicine doctor, which I'll explain what that is. It's a they're a highly specialized OB, so they they have all the skills of a of an obstetrician, but they don't deliver any babies because they just work with super high risk patients, develop a plan for the pregnancy, and then give it to the regular OB, and the OB puts it into practice. But they work in conjunction with each other. I see. That's cool. Yeah. So I see an MFM regularly, and she, I have this awesome doctor. She is amazing, um, and she takes such good care of me and us, and um, she'll, like, text me. Like, when we were going through the termination, she was texting me at, like, 10 p.m. at night, like, I'm so torn. I want to help you make this decision in any way that I can. Send me any questions that you have. I, you know, I want to help you decide, make this decision, you know. Um, so I found a super good team of doctors who listen to me. Um, I think a lot of people come to me and they say, I've, I've lost a child and I've switched doctors. And how do you make yourself, like, how do you get through the next pregnancy? I don't know. I'm so struggling. I'm like, find a good doctor. Find someone who listens to you. If you don't feel good with the doctor you're at, don't be afraid to change. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to go find somebody else that you feel more comfortable with and feels like listens to you, doesn't, you know, isn't patronizing, is, doesn't diminish your concerns or anything that, like, really listens to you. I have found a fantastic doctor. He gave me his cell phone number. I know that's not super common, but he gave me his cell phone number. So when I had Colin and Ashton, if I ever was just tripping out, you know, PTSD, like, I would just text him. He'd be like, come in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, yeah, they that work is so really kind. well together. I mean, that is like an empathetic, he knows, he yeah. just knows. Yeah. Why, why put you through that suffering? It's yeah. un, unneeded. Exactly. How do you feel about pregnancy now? Is it, is it something that triggers your, it, I mean, it's, you have PTSD. Yeah. Well, so like right after we lost India, I wanted to be pregnant immediately. Like I just want, I was craving that baby so, so hard, you know? Um, but after this termination, you know, I've always envisioned us having more children. Um, I'm really up and down and back and forth, and I don't know how much my mind and my body and spirit can handle anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it can handle years. more. Yeah. Nine years of this. Well, yeah. No, seven years. Seven, seven. and a half years. Because when, when my doctor told me, you can start to try and get pregnant until like now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I haven't said this yet, but I've had seven pregnancies. So I've had three miscarriages, one stillbirth, two live births, and one termination. Gosh. So that's a lot. That's a lot. My body has been through a lot, and on top of that, brain surgery, you know? And so I start to think, like, how much more can my body handle? And I'm almost 34 years old, and at 35, you're considered a geriatric high-risk pregnancy already. So I'm high-risk on top of that, you know? Do they seriously call it a geriatric? They call it a geriatric they pregnancy That is so awful. They mean to. That I'm like, to can be, you do anything more demoralizing? That is, they cannot do that. <laughs> Anyway, so um, 
I really am like, I don't know. So I've gone through a wave of feeling like we should adopt. Maybe we should look into surrogacy or maybe this is it. Maybe yeah. these two boys are it. Like mm-hmm. your blessings after the road that you have gone through, yep. like the fact that you have these two beautiful, amazing, healthy boys yes. to mother. They're seriously perfect. And they are. They are gorgeous. They look so <laughs> different so to me. They, they are. look so different to you. Well, it's funny because when Cohen was born, he had dark hair and dark eyes and people were like, he looks so much like you. And I'm like, this kid is like white. I, you can't see me, but I'm half Indian. So I just thought, no way is my kid like, he's not dark. Like, you know, yeah. so... Um, and then when Ashton was born, he was actually born with red hair and blue eyes. And I'm yeah, like, he oh. is light. <laughs> he, he's blonde now and green eyes. And I'm like, I get why you guys said that Cohen looks like me now. Like, okay, because that that doesn't look like me, but Cohen does. Yeah, they are the cutest boys ever. And they are amazing. Um, so Cohen is my rainbow baby. So they say that after you lose a child and you have another child, that's a rainbow baby because the rainbow after the storm. And he is everything that a rainbow symbolizes and is. He truly is just this bursts of color and wonder into our lives and he's kind of an old soul and he's just so sweet and good and I think that's Indy in him you know and then Ashton comes on the scene and he's wild and loud and just has FOMO wants to be everywhere you know and like so he's a little bit different than Cohen. Yeah. Cohen still has to process. You know, I remember going to the doctor with Ashton being like, is something wrong with him? Like, he's insane and the doctor <laughs> laughed and he's like, I, he chuckled, he's like, I have to tell you Cohen's an anomaly three times out of four they're gonna be like Ashton not like Cohen and I was just like why couldn't he have come first oh my god it's true that's what happened to me yeah Ozzy is my Ashton yep for real okay Nina I wanted to just so you know this is the first time I've done a podcast where I've been holding back like guttural <laughs> I kind of lost my bearings here I kind of just like le- like I I was there's no captain of the ship like 10 times no too. captain of the ship I just kind of wanted to ugly cry you know when you are pushing down your emotions oh yeah it hurts like, and it hurts your heart a little bit like, like it physically hurt deep yeah, yes. yes so I oh that was a lot I I just I want to thank you yeah. so much for letting me be this person with you it's an honor to me not even with this podcast like you sharing your story with me means a lot to me and my life and and especially I know the listeners too and well you know I just think you're lovely I know I know thank you so much anything else you wanted to say before um is there an important thing we missed I I got too emotional I'm too in my emotions I know me too and I just want to like I just want to say like just love the person who's going through this you know just try and show them unconditional love anything if they're going through a stillbirth if they're going through a termination like there's already so much grief and pain and hatred in this world you know all you can do is just the responsibility is in your hands like just take it and just give love and just give support like that's all you can do and I think it's the most important thing you can do and I I just want people to understand that that you know even with a termination with an abortion even if that person you know it was unprotected sex and it was you know accidental like they made the decision to do that and they're going to live with it their whole lives and that's a consequence enough because I know how that feels and I just want everyone to show love just be kind you couldn't say it any better Nina we love you thank you so much thank you for having me until next week you guys (laughs) bye bye bye